You know, I doubt that many of you are familiar with the restoration movement. We don't talk about it much, but as a congregation, we do have historical roots in the restoration movement. It's a movement that began in the early 1800s among American Presbyterian, Methodist, and Baptist churches. And a primary goal of the restoration movement was to do away with divisive denominational differences, such as names and creeds and doctrinal statements, and to restore the simple New Testament church. Now, I think that is an admirable goal and one that we should keep in mind. It is, however, sometimes difficult to communicate just what that entails. You know, some years ago, while telling the denominational brother of our desire to restore the New Testament church, he responded by asking, which one? <laughs> and that's a good question. You know, we certainly wouldn't want to restore the church in Corinth with its party spirit, immorality, and distorted view of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Nor the church of Sardis that thought itself alive but was pronounced dead by the Lord. Nor the church in Laodicea which was neither hot nor cold, but lukewarm and actually made the Lord sick to his stomach. Obviously, the goal is to restore the ideal church as presented in the New Testament, not a specific congregation. However, if we did want to pattern ourselves after an actual church in the New Testament, the church in Antioch, would be a good one to restore. It's a church that was apparently founded by unnamed Christians who fled Jerusalem during the persecution that arose after the death of Stephen. And surprisingly, it was located in a Las Vegas of the first century. Antioch was the third greatest city in the world at the time with a population of half a million. It was famous for luxurious immorality, and deliberate pursuit of pleasure day and night. It was known for gambling, nightclubs, and prostitution. But it was here that a church was born and grew. A church that soon developed the marks of a great church. Marks we're going to explore this morning. And the first mark we notice is that the church in Antioch was an open church. We're in Acts chapter 11, verses 19 and 20. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks, also preaching the Lord Jesus. Now, the first Christians, you'll recall, were all Jewish converts. And as they were forced out of Jerusalem, they carried the gospel wherever they went. But like the apostles, they at first only shared the gospel with other Jews. It wasn't until some believers from Cyprus and Cyrene came to Antioch that a church began to intentionally take the gospel to the Gentiles. 
Now, as we've already noted, some outreach to Gentiles had begun. Philip preached to Samaritans, a mixed race that formed a bridge between the Jewish and Gentile world. And Peter had accepted Cornelius into the church after visions and angels and the Holy Spirit convinced him it was okay. But you know, even then, Cornelius was a God-fearer, a Gentile who worshipped the Jewish God. And it wasn't the church who sought out Cornelius. Cornelius sought out the church, the first church. To intentionally seek out Gentiles was the church in Antioch. It was the first truly open church where all were welcomed and actively pursued. And that, I believe, is the first mark of a great church. A great church will always be an open church where anyone is welcome, and all are deliberately pursued. Economic, racial, and cultural barriers don't exist in great churches. And if we would be a great church, they can't exist here. Now, I realize it's hard to test our commitment to openness in a homogeneous community like Chatham where we are all so much alike. But when given the opportunity, we must deliberately pursue all kinds of people. Now, having said that, I must point out that welcoming and pursuing all kinds of people does not mean we accept behaviors and lifestyles that are biblically defined as sinful. A great church welcomes anyone who wants to come to Christ, but it never allows society to define what is and what is not acceptable behavior for a Christian. You may have noted I added that to my text. My wife brought that again to my attention. I thought I was going to just ignore that. She said, hmm, you better say something. Thank you, honey. I've said something. Well, if we will be a biblically open church, a biblically open church, we, like the church at Antioch, will also bear the second mark of a great church. We will be a growing church. Verses 21 to 24. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And the news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then when they had come and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. Because of their obedience to his commands, the Lord blessed the church with growth. His hand was with them, and a large number who believed 
turned to the Lord. People were pursued. They came. They were welcomed. And the church grew. Before long, the church in Jerusalem heard that great things were happening in Antioch. And they sent someone to check it out and to see if they could do anything to help. The man they sent to encourage them was Barnabas, whose name means son of encouragement. He's the one who sold his property and used the funds to provide for the needy Christians in Jerusalem. He's the one who received Saul of Tarsus when the apostles were leery of him. And being from Cyprus himself, he could immediately identify with those from Cyprus who had begun preaching to Gentiles. He was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And when he saw what was happening in Antioch, he rejoiced. He wasn't jealous. He wasn't suspicious of their growth. He saw the grace of God at work and simply encouraged them to remain true to the Lord. And they did. They were faithful and God blessed. Through their work and God's blessing, considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. Now, I think we all realize that numerical growth isn't necessarily a sign of God's blessing. Few of us would say that the Mormons and Muslims are growing because God is blessing their work. There are many factors that can lead to growth. But if we are consciously striving to bring people to the Lord, obviously the church will grow. So a great church is a growing church. But a great church will never be satisfied just to grow. As numbers were brought to the Lord, the church at Antioch made sure they received adequate teaching so they could go on to maturity in Christ. And that is the next mark of a great church. A great church is a teaching church. And Barnabas left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And it came about that for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. The Revised Standard Version begins, verse 25, with the word, so, because of the considerable numbers who were being brought to the Lord, Barnabas recognized the need for another well-qualified teacher. And he thought of Saul, who had been in and around the hometown of Tarsus for about seven years since the apostles sent him home from Jerusalem where his aggressive evangelism caused nothing but problems for the church. He had to mellow out. But he was a great teacher, and Barnabas knew that. And when Barnabas found him, he asked him to join him in Antioch, and both of them dedicated themselves to a year of solid teaching for the new converts. They knew it wasn't enough just to win people to Christ. Those who are one must then be nurtured in Christ. They need to be taught. The church is fundamentally a teaching institution. The Great Commission said... Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. It takes a lot of teaching to teach all that Christ 
has commanded us. So a great church is a teaching church. It offers numerous opportunities to learn, and it encourages members to take advantage of those opportunities. Now, we do not expect everyone to be at everything the church offers. And it's not necessarily a mark of commitment to be at the church every time the doors are opened. But you should be taking advantage of opportunities to study God's Word and doing so more than by simply being here on Sunday mornings. There's just too much to learn to cover it all in a half-hour sermon once a week. And it's good to get different perspectives from different teachers. You know, Barnabas didn't just double his teaching load. He provided the church with another well-qualified teacher. So a great church is always looking for more good teachers, as are we. There's always a place for more teachers in our Sunday school program, on Sunday nights, and in our Bible studies. And thankfully, we do have a lot of good teachers. Teachers who take seriously the responsibility of teaching God's Word. Teachers who study hard and prepare diligently to be able to effectively share God's Word with others. It does little good, however, to have great teachers if no one comes to learn. So a great church not only provides the best possible teachers, it does everything it can to get people into a study of God's Word. I encourage you, break out of whatever constraints you are in. <laughs> you know, I realize some are consistent in attending just one service, and they're comfortable with that. And I, I have to acknowledge that. But don't, don't assume everything else we offer is for someone else. Okay? Just be open to the possibility that there might be something going on on Sunday night or Wednesday night or Thursday night that you should be at. And you could benefit from and you could become a more complete Christian by being there. Don't just settle for what you have found comfortable. That's all I want to say. Okay? We teach. We teach in lots of places and lots of ways. We are a teaching church. But if no one comes to learn, teaching is like preaching to the choir. So come. I'll quit there. A great church is a teaching church. And it makes certain when people come, the teaching they get is Christ-centered. In fact, everything a great church does is Christ-centered. We're not just trying to make Bible scholars out of you. We want you to know Christ. We want you to know His Word. We want you to know His person. Everything we do should be Christ-centered. And that is the next mark of a great church. And the disciples 
were first called Christians in Antioch. The fact that the disciples were called Christians tells us much about the message they proclaimed and the life that they lived. They were Christ-centered people. The word Christian means to belong to Christ, and there was no doubt about this new group in Antioch. The townspeople consistently heard them talking about this Jesus, the Christ, and their life was patterned after his life. What else could they be called but Christians? You know, there was a time in the Restoration Movement when we talked so much about Alexander Campbell, one of the founders of the movement, that we were known as Campbellites, kind of like Lutherans. And at times we've talked so much about immersion that we've been known as immersionists, kind of like Baptists. Let's make every effort to make sure the thing we talk about most is Christ. So we'll be known as Christians. Or as some like to be known today as Christ followers. Some are making a huge move in that direction saying Christian has lost its meaning. I don't think so. But if you'd rather call yourself a Christ follower, I can handle it. Let's be followers of Christ. Let's be known as Christ's people. Let's strive to be known above all else for our allegiance to Christ, the church that is Christ-centered. And finally, a great church is a sharing church. Now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch and One of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. A prophet named Agabus came from Jerusalem with some other prophets and warned the church in Antioch of an impending famine. The Spirit indicated through them that a great famine would soon take place and the famine would be worldwide. It would affect the people in Antioch. But the way the church responded to the news marks them as a truly great church rather than panic and go into a self-preservation mode, they immediately began planning how they could meet the needs of others. They realized Judea would be hardest hit, being primarily an agricultural region. And since they were the hub of international trade, they knew they would have access to resources not available in Judea. The famine would obviously affect them, but their first concern was for the other parts of the body of Christ with even greater need. They did not have a let's take care of those closest to home attitude. They looked at the church as a whole and sought to meet the greatest needs first. They had a growing church 
and no doubt had growing needs of their own, but they did not become so self-centered that they overlooked the needs that existed elsewhere. And that is truly a mark of a great church. And I am so thankful that we are a sharing church. I trust that you are aware that we give around a fourth of everything that comes into our treasury to others. The financial projection you approved for this year was nearly $240,000, and of that, over $58,000 was designated for missions. Even that figure is not viewed by our elders as a cap on giving to others. Due to your faithfulness as stewards and the level of your giving, they were recently able to send an additional $5,000 to Jesse for a truck to be used in evangelism in Burma, $5,000 to print additional copies of the Lisu Bible he's worked on for years, $1,000 to Theo in Jamaica for truck repairs, $2,000 for the camp to help finish the Eagle Lodge, and $1,000 to the Christian Student Fellowship to help send Todd Magruder to Colorado for specialized counsel after resigning as campus minister due to increasing impairment following two brain surgeries. In addition to that, we are beginning mid-year with regular support for Brian and Megan Green as they move to Texas to prepare for Bible translation work in North Africa. And like the church in Antioch, monies given to our church are entrusted to elders to distribute. And our elders have the faith necessary to assure that we are indeed a sharing church. In fact, I think we're a pretty great church. And we'll continue to be. As long as we seek to be an open church, a growing church, a teaching church, a Christ-centered church, and a sharing church. And if you're not part of a great church, I invite you to become part of one today. As an open church, we welcome you just as you are and encourage you to make Chatham Christian Church your church home.